Well, it's good to be back here. Um, some of you will know that my wife and I purchased a property about a year ago. And purchasing a house is a bit of a process. After the negotiation phase, signing of contracts, which then go unconditional, our, our house was finally ready for settlement in January. Now, this didn't happen to us, but suppose settlement date rolls by and with title in hand, we turn up at our new house, we knock on the door, greeted by the previous owners, but they refuse to leave. Well, this is where the process gets messy. Navigating legalities and courts and processes to follow. Eventually, though, the previous owner will be evicted, allowing us to take rightful possession of that it is that we have purchased. An owner taking possession of something purchased. Put simply, that's what the book of Revelation is about. Revelation was written by John whilst he was locked up uh, in exile, sorry, on the island of Patmos. It was written to encourage a persecuted church in the first century and to encourage us today by reminding believers who God is, that God is in control, and that he will bring his story to its proper end for both believers and unbelievers. And I appreciate it's a book that can come across as confusing with imagery and symbols. And in our passage today, we see scrolls and seals and creatures. But it's a book that can be understood. And Revelation 1.19 provides itself an outline for this book. Write therefore what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. The things you have seen are verses 1 and 20 of chapter 1. The things which are now refers to the letter to the seven churches, which is in chapters 2 and 3. And then the things that will take place later refers to the visions recorded in the remainder of the book. Now, much ink has been spilt by scholars debating and dissecting every thought and idea about what those things that will take place are. And there are four traditional approaches which I'll just briefly talk about. The first view, the book of Revelation applies only to past events. This is called the Preterist view. From our point of view today, it's an account of historical events, such as the fall of Jerusalem, the fall of the Roman Empire, and other historical events. The second view is that the book is an account of history of the church from the time of Christ, which is called the Historist view. It ties that the various eras of church history, such as the persecution of the early church, the Dark Ages, the Reformation of the Middle Ages, and so forth, that these are things that, that were to come, but are now in our past. The third view sees that the whole book is about future events, whether it's a near future or whether it's a really distant future. That's called the Futurist view. And this view would suggest that we should be waiting for these signs and wonders that this book talks about to happen. And then finally, there's the view that the book of Revelation is, is symbolic of a struggle between good and evil. This is called the idealist view. And this view leaves the book open to your own particular approach as to how you want to see the struggle in the world today. Now, I'm not going to go into these approaches in detail. And each of these views has something to commend it 
and we can find true aspects of what revelation is in each of those views. But if you understand that God is the rightful owner, that he has purchased something, believers such as you and I, and that he will claim that that he has purchased, then this book of Revelation makes a lot more sense as it reveals the plans and the processes of God doing that. And in today's passage, we will see that God is the rightful owner because he is creator and because he is redeemer. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we just pray that no matter where we are in our walk with you, that you will speak to us today. We pray that you will open our hearts, that you will still our minds as we look at your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, this passage that we just had read talks about someone who sits on a throne. And to understand this passage, we need to briefly go back and have a look at the previous passage. Because chapters 4 and 5 are part of one vision that set the scene for chapter 6 and beyond. Chapter 4 begins with an invitation and an open door to heaven. After this I looked and there before me was a door standing open to heaven. God is going to reveal his future plans through John. But first the stage must be set. John sees a special throne in heaven which is the seat of power itself from which God rules. God is on this throne holding all things in his hands. Now John's primary audience, those believers and followers in the first century, they faced persecution. They rejected worship of a Roman emperor and they were subjected to discrimination, physical suffering, and in some cases even death. And so this message is one of assurance that he is there on the throne, he is control, and he is worthy of our praise and worship. The curtain is going to be pulled back for John, and all the things that are happening on earth, well, when this curtain is pulled back, it's shown that there is also activity happening in heaven. Now, I'm going to read some verses for you, and I just want you to imagine this scene in heaven in your mind's eye, of what is taking place in heaven. There'll be some audio playing, and it's, it's not for mood, but it'll make a lot more sense later as we look at chapter 5. So starting with verse 3. The one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. God is too glorious for words. John can only describe his reflected glory, as light is reflected through precious gems. There's a circular rainbow. The throne is surrounded by a rainbow, recalling God's promise of grace 
and mercy to Noah. And then verse 6 continues the description. In the center around the throne were four living creatures. They were covered with eyes in front and back. Day and night they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And then whenever the living creatures give glory, honour and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And verse 10 continues, they lay their crowns before the throne and they say, you are worthy our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. So as, as this curtain is turned back, do you get the sense of the power and the majesty of this scene that is described by John? In our lives, we're concerned with the daily affairs of work, school, church, society, and government. But God is on this throne, and at the center of all this activity is endless worship. It's a wave of worship that starts at the throne with the four living creatures singing holy, 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 and then the 24 elders surrounding them repeating over and over and over again, day and night, as God rules from his throne. When you approach the throne in your prayers, is this the image of God that you see? Does your worship of God reflect the reality that he is in control of the world today? Are your petitions and requests to God filled with the confidence of one who approaches a throne such as this? God is worthy to receive this worship because in verse 11, he created all things. Our world belongs to God. We belong to God because he is creator. And that's a wonderful hope and comfort for us Christians today, even in troubled times as this. Which brings us to our passage in chapter 5. Verse 1, Then I saw at the, in the right hand of him who sat at the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in the loud, loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside. And I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy. You could get the sense now that something different is happening. In chapter 4, heaven is constantly worshipping God night and day. 
But now, heaven's attention is drawn somewhere else, to the right hand of God, holding a scroll. This is most likely a scroll of papyrus or parchment, representing the plans of God to bring ultimate justice to the earth. And it's been sealed with clay or wax seals. This kind of scroll would have been a familiar sight for John and his readers. It was a sort that was used for important documents in the day, such as Roman contracts and for wills. We're given a piece of detail that it has writing on both sides. In antiquity, scrolls were seldom written on both sides because one side was smooth for writing. But when both sides were written on, it was an indication of a full and an important message. And the very fact that it's written is significant. It's written to indicate there is, this can't be changed. God has written it. There's no possibility that anyone can change it. It's written. It's finished. And whoever reads the scroll will be reading a completed testament from the start to finish. The number of the seals, seven, indicates that it's been perfectly and divinely sealed. Only one who is worthy to be able to take the scroll and unseal it is the one that will be able to carry out the plans that it represents. But not a single created being, material or immaterial, was found to be worthy. And this causes John to weep at what seems an impossibility of justice finally being realised. He didn't know much about the scroll, but he knew that it must hold a great blessing for God's people and that they would be deprived unless someone could open it. But John is encouraged because there is someone who can open the scroll. In verses 5, Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. But then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing in the centre of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures. This is like one of those expectation versus reality memes. We're expecting a lion, an image of strength and majesty, but instead we're presented with an image of a lamb, a slaughtered one at that. The one who could open the scroll is from the Israelite tribe of Judah, a descendant of King David, and one that has shed blood to redeem his people, like the slain lamb at Passover. Only Jesus matches the description. And verse 6 continues, The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which were the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Jesus is described as having seven horns, Seven, seven eyes. These are symbolic images where seven horns represent complete power and seven eyes representing complete knowledge of what is happening throughout the earth. And when Jesus takes the scroll, something remarkable happens in heaven. We see in verse 8. When he had taken it, the four living creatures 
and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which were the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nations. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Okay, so did you see what happened in heaven? If you didn't see it, you should have heard it. Heaven is singing a new song. Day and night, they worship God, who sat at the throne. But now the track has changed. There is now a new tune, and all of heaven is singing out. As we see in verse 11, Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. Heaven is singing a new song. And in chapter 4, God on the throne was worthy of worship of heaven because he was the creator of all things. But why is the Lamb worthy of worship? Well, in verse 5, we see that the Lamb triumphed. But what was this triumph? The answer to that is in verses 9 and 12. They sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain. And verse 12, in a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and praise. This is the reason for the worship of heaven. It's the death of Jesus. Not his teaching, not his wonderful life, not his compassion, his miracles, his wonders, not his power, but it was the shedding of his blood. As 1 Peter 1 puts it, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down from you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Jesus is worthy because he did what no Davidic king could do before. He was perfectly obedient to God every second of his earthly life. And because of that perfect obedience, he alone was able to give his life as a ransom in order to redeem to reclaim, to rescue people from every nation, race, class, corner of the earth. I'm only here today because someone reached out to my dad in India when he was just a small boy in every nation of the earth. The old song is one of creation, but the new song is a song of the redeemed. 
redemption is the theme. And in verses 9 and 10, if we look more closely at them, we'll see that, that these verses go through what it is about redemption. We see the price of redemption, that Jesus was slain. We see the payment of redemption, that it was through Jesus' blood. We see the act of redemption, Jesus purchased. The destination of redemption, purchased for God. The scope of redemption was every tribe and language and people and nation. And the result of redemption was to bring together a new kingdom where we are in that. We have been made kings and priests and shall reign on the earth. What happened at the cross was significant. The cross where Jesus was crucified, where his blood was shed, but where he was ultimately victorious. He triumphed over sin and death, and God appointed him to perfectly judge the sin of all mankind. What happened at the cross was significant. So significant that heaven sang a new song. Verses 13 and 14 show that everyone will one day acknowledge God as creator and as redeemer. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that was in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be praise and honour and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshipped. This worship by everyone is to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Both God as creator and God as redeemer. Everyone will acknowledge. Some will gladly confess because they have understood and trusted in the death of Jesus and what that means for themselves. And those who rejected God will one day reluctantly acknowledge that he is Lord. So how do we respond to this passage? Well, let's adjust our vision to that of a powerful and majestic God ruling on the throne. He's in full control of all that is going on. We can confidently approach the throne in our prayers and trust his plans and purposes for our lives and for the world. Let's see what Christ has done for us through his death on the cross. He has bought us so that we can be God's people. Christ paid the price so that we can be in relationship with God, so that we can approach that throne. And not only can we be in relationship, but we can be part of this ruling kingdom of God as well. We are part of an indestructible kingdom it's not going to be a kingdom that rises and falls. It's going to be around forever. We are heirs of that kingdom, children of the king, with all the rights and privileges that go with that status. And not only are we in this kingdom, but we are also made priests. We have direct access to the Father. We can speak to him and receive forgiveness. Our lives in every way should honour God. And not only are we made to be priests, but we reign with Christ. It does not matter what happens to us in this life. 
our inheritance is sure. When we see and appreciate what Christ has done, then we will worship as all the created beings in heaven and earth worship. We will repeatedly praise him. We'll be in awe of him. We will bow down before him. We'll give ourselves to him. Our lives will reflect the praise and the worship of the one who sits on the, lamb, on the throne and of the Lamb. And all these things should spur us on to share the good news about Jesus. This time in history is an era of grace for people to accept that Jesus is the only way to salvation. Jesus has redeemed people from all nations and cultures and languages. What more can we do in mission? both in our city and beyond. God is the rightful owner because he is creator and because he is redeemer and he will take rightful possession. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we stand before your throne in heaven, we thank you for all you have done to allow us to be close to you again. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit that helps us to understand who you are. And we recognize the faithful efforts of believers throughout time who spread your truths so that we could be here today as believers of Jesus. We pray that you will strengthen us in the areas we lack when it comes to sharing your truth. We pray for opportunities to share and for ears to be opened. Our city is full of people from tribes and nations and languages. And we pray that more in our city come to know your redemptive love. Help us to apply your word to our lives this week and help us as a community of believers to encourage each other in our walk with you. Amen.